This morning, our scripture comes from Mark chapter 6. This is the passage we know as the feeding of the 5,000. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving. People from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. With what, they asked, we'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. And Jesus took five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. And this is the amazing word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We are cruising through the gospel of Mark, and in the section of text that we cover today, uh, Jesus goes home to his hometown to preach. He's not really accepted too well there. He sends the, the disciples out to do ministry, and then there's this section that is rated TVMA about Herod and John the Baptist and the beheading of John the Baptist, and then we come to this story about what Jesus does for the crowds. It's a Jesus story, and we just read it. Jesus sends his disciples uh, to look for rest after this busy season of ministry, and the crowds interrupt their time of rest. And so Jesus, uh, with a crowd in front of him, begins to teach, and the day grows later and later. The disciples read the room a little bit, and they realize that nobody has any food, and so they go to Jesus, what do we do? And Jesus, at the end of the day, rolls up his sleeves and everybody on site is fed with the equivalent of a meal off the child's menu. And there are 5,000 men, which probably means that there are also women and children that, that are not included in that number. So this miracle could be way bigger than 5,000. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is... The only one of all of the miracles that Jesus does that is included in every gospel. The story was so important for those first Christians and the circles that they ran in that none of the gospel writers would leave this story out. And so let's take a look, uh, kind of a microscope, and, and take a look at this text today. And I, there are three lines that I want to specifically look at that will tell us the most about this story of Jesus. The, 
The story begins when Jesus and his disciples are leaving on the boat to get someplace quiet. They're on one side of the lake. They know of a spot that they're going to get to, and so they shove off the shore. The crowds that they are leaving realize pretty quickly the guess as to where Jesus and his disciples are going. And so while Jesus and his disciples are sailing, they actually hike around the lake. And when Jesus and his disciples pull up to the shore expecting a day off, the very same thing is in front of them that they thought they were trying to get away from. It's a crowd of people. Have you ever had a nap interrupted by a doorbell? (laughs) Have you ever had a day off interrupted by something urgent that came up? Have you ever had a vacation ruined by something unexpected that came up? How'd that go for you? For most of us, that's irritating. We get angry. Uh, It doesn't look pretty, but, but for Jesus, it not really that way. Maybe there was a sense of this weary disappointment, but it doesn't come through in any of the writers as they tell us about this story. Jesus does not see in front of him a nosy crowd who is an inconvenience. Instead, he sees something else. Verse 34, here it is. When he went ashore and saw the great crowd, he had, what's the word? Compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Compassion in the Greek uh, language is this beautiful word, splachna. Everybody say it with me, splachna. Yeah, it sounds like you're throwing up, right? And that's good because that's what the word means. <laughs> like it is this idea of getting your inside so twisted up because of your empathy for somebody else that you feel sick. And that's the kind of empathy that is going on here in Jesus. Now, why is he this compassionate? Why does he have this inner turmoil going on? Because he looked at the crowds, and the text says they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's a pretty easy picture to grab a hold of, to think through. All kinds of bad things can happen when sheep are without a shepherd. When sheep are without a shepherd, the sheep don't know which way to go, and they wander aimlessly. They get lost with no way back to safety. When there's no shepherd, the sheep have nothing to eat, because that's one of the jobs of a shepherd, to take them to the pastures. When they don't have a shepherd, there's nothing to drink, and so you have thirsty, starving sheep when there's no shepherd, because the shepherd leads them to those places. Probably the most important is that a shepherd protects the sheep. And so when the shepherd is missing, there's no defense. The wolves can come in. The enemies can come in and attack and devour. This phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is not an uncommon phrase. As a matter of fact, if you turn back to the Old Testament, you'll find that this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, was a very common way of describing God's people in the Old Testament when they don't have a king. There are lots of scriptures we could point to, but one of the things that Mark is doing for us in this section that we're covering is he's doing what a good jeweler does. A good jeweler, when you want to look at a piece of jewelry, will pull out a piece of really dark fabric. And then they'll put that jewel, those diamonds or that ring on top of the dark fabric. And so that ring pops, the the diamonds sparkle against the backdrop of the darkness 
And that's what Mark is doing here for us. These people, the crowds that are in front of Jesus, they already have a king. And the king's name is Herod. And that's one of the texts in this little section. We learn about Herod and how he kills John the Baptist. This king, Herod, is he leading the crowds right now? No, 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 no. They're in the desert. He's back in his palace. Is Herod providing for the crowds right now? No. He's giving himself a lewd birthday party back at the palace. Is he protecting the crowds right now? No. He doesn't care about the crowds. He just cares about himself. As a matter of fact, he's not only not caring about the crowds, but he's putting one of their own to death. Is that dark? Yeah, that's the dark fabric that Mark lays out for us. And against that fabric, Mark highlights Jesus. He says, I want you to see a different kind of king. One that has compassion for these people who are without a leader. And so, Jesus in this little story does some amazingly king-like things. We could say Messiah-like things. And so what we really have here at the end of the day is a revolution taking place. The people see in Jesus a person that can cure everything that is wrong with their physical world at the time. Uh, When you look at John's account of this miracle, it says that after Jesus feeds the 5,000 people, The crowds wanted to come and make him king by force. They realize that he is something special, and in their minds, he's king. And so, if you're in Jesus' shoes, put yourself there. What's your first order of business with all of these people who are willing to follow you? And we could turn to endless number of resources here about how revolutions work. They happen all the time, right? And when people are ready for a revolution, as a leader, what do you do for them? You give them guns. You outfit them with weapons. You form them up into units and divisions, and you train them to fight. And then you go and you conquer someone. That is what people are expecting. What does Jesus do? Look at it. He began to teach them. The solution for sheep who are without a shepherd, for this leaderless people of God, thanks to King Herod, the the solution is to teach them a lot. It's an abundance of teaching. Other wannabe messiahs would gather crowds and they would teach them how to hold weapons, but Jesus holds a Bible conference. Have you ever been to one of those? The NFL uh, awards were given out this week, and uh, the highest award that they give out is called the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, and it's given to somebody who exemplifies um, excellence on the field as they play the game of football, but also, uh, more than that, it's given to somebody who exemplifies service and giving to their community through the charities and the efforts that they're involved in. And this year's winner was a guy named Andrew Whitworth. He plays for the, for the Rams, and so I don't know who you're rooting for today. I don't really care because I'm not really sure who I'm rooting for. But he plays for the Rams. He's the offensive tackle. And I don't know much about Andrew. I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know what charities he's big with uh, at all. But, but I did catch his acceptance speech. And he tells of something that happened when they played the Detroit Lions 
this season. After the game, the horn goes off, and one of the opposing players, one of the Detroit Lions, comes sprinting up to him right away, like, like they had known each other forever. But he looks at this player, he has no idea who this player is, and he realizes that at that moment, he's been in the league a long time. And so he's wondering, maybe this is a, a former coach's kid or something like that, am I that old? And, but this kid takes off his helmet and he says to Whitworth, you don't remember me, but I remember you. My name is Derek Barnes. And when you first came into the league, you would come down to the boys and girls club that I was a part of, and you would spend time with us. And I want you to know that it meant the world to me. You used to sit with me and just talk about life. You used to teach us about what it meant to be a human being that got life right. And I just want you to know, I will never forget that. And I wanted to come and tell you today, I made it. I made it. I'm from that inner city. I didn't have a lot going for me, but I made it. You shared yourself. You shared the truth. And I made it to the NFL, and you're one of the reasons. Whitworth summed up uh, his speech with these lines. He says this. I made an investment in him, and I didn't even know it. None of us know when the moment is going to present itself. The key is to always be available when it does. On a Tuesday off day for an NFL player when nobody wants to be anywhere but home, this guy took time out of his schedule to go and be with kids and teach them. And after a season of hard ministry work, when he's looking forward to a nap on the beach, Jesus takes that same time out and he teaches the crowd. Seeing needs in others, having compassion for the sheep, that's the motive for Christian service. And so Jesus begins teaching and he gives the crowd an abundance of it. And then he also gives them an abundance of food. Here's how it works out. Verse 35, it grew late. And his disciples come to him. And they say, this is a desolate place. And the hour is late. And so send the people away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I told you that Jesus was holding a Bible conference. Have you ever been to one of those? Uh, if you remember, you'll look down the program, and the program will usually be something like this, 9 to about 12. You're going to have sessions and breakouts and all of that good stuff, and you're going to learn a lot about Scripture, okay? And then from uh, 1.30 to 4.30 or 5, it's the same thing. You're going to have sessions. But in the middle on the program, it'll even say it this way, from 12 to 1.30, it'll say, lunch on your own. Anybody? Just me. Okay. Yeah, there's a few. Lunch on your own, right? That's what the disciples are thinking. Whoo, Jesus. Wow, good sessions. Good stuff. You've been listening to the Keller? Wow, good job. Powerful. Hey, everybody needs a break right now. So uh, let's send them all away for lunch on their own. And the disciples come to Jesus. They recognize the problem, but as far as they were concerned, it's not their problem. Someone needs to do something, Jesus. It's just not going to be us. That's a very normal way to respond when you're tired, when you're hungry, like they were. And Jesus 
wrecks their plans for the evening. Verse 37, he answers them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. It was emphatic. It was imperative. The words were unexpected out of Jesus. This is not what they expected Jesus to say. They were unreasonable, and the words were impossible. Because you can understand their hesitation here, their worry. Right away, they are thinking like men who have suddenly been put in charge of dinner. And in that situation, the answer is, we pull out our phone and we pull up the Domino's app. That's what we do. And the disciples did that. They see a problem right away. They pull up their Domino's app, and they look at the crowd, and they're like, oh, my goodness. I don't think one pizza is going to do this, right? They get out their calculators. They start adding it all up. I don't think eight months' wages will do this. If we do two toppings, forget it. It's like a year. It's not going to happen. Jesus, we cannot do this. And what I want you to see is that their tone to Jesus was disrespectful, and it was sarcastic. Are you kidding, Jesus? We'd have to buy the whole Domino's franchise to take care of them. Jesus comes back with a game-changing question. What do you have? What do you have? Go and see. Go and take some inventory, find out what you do have, and then come back. They do, they go, and they come back, and there's not much. There's five little loaves. They, they are probably little barley rolls that were the food of poor people, but not necessarily poor food, if you can follow that. Uh, and th there's a couple of fish, and the, the fish are not fish like we would think of fish. Probably dinner rolls and sardines are the better way to think about what is offered to Jesus. And you know what they're thinking after they take this inventory, after they bring back what they have, because we think exactly the same thing. We bring something like this, and in almost anything that you and I offer to Christ, more, than, more often than not, we think, what is the good of that? What, what is the good of that? They look at a Lunchable and then at a horde of hungry people, and then they look back at the Lunchable, and they say, what is the good of that? One day, a couple of Christians were out distributing loaves of bread in a low-income housing complex, and they came to a particular apartment where they heard arguing through the door, but they went ahead and they knocked on the door anyway, and a man came to the door and asked what they wanted, and one of them said, well, we, we don't want anything we just wondered if anyone inside could use some loaves of bread. Could you use some loaves of bread? He says, why are you doing that? And they said, well, we're giving loaves of bread to people just so that they know that God loves them. The man got vis visibly anxious. He said, what did you just say? Well, we're, we're just handing out loaves of bread to let people know that God loves them. And the man stared at them and said, I can't, I can't believe this. We, we buried our son yesterday, and now here you are at our door. And the visitors kind of picked up that these people needed some, uh, some help and some ministering to, and so they offered to stay and pray with them, and the couple accepted their offer. And as, this, uh, Christian, as these Christians were leaving... And the door was being closed. They overheard the husband turn to his wife and say, see, I told you. 
I told you that God cares. We thought he wasn't paying attention to us. But he sent those people to make sure that we knew. A couple of loaves of bread, that's all it took. A nice random act of kindness. Sometimes that's all God needs to break into somebody's life to let them know that he's there and that he cares. Part of the lesson here in this story is that Jesus can use even a very small thing in very powerful ways when it's committed to him. The answer to what, what's the good of that is this, I don't know, but Jesus will. The lesson is whatever you have, it's enough. Whatever you have, it's enough. We focus on what we don't have most of the time. Jesus isn't interested in what we don't have. He says, go and figure out what you do have. What do you have? And so for most of us, Jesus isn't asking us, hey, do you have 40 hours a week to give me? That's not the question. The question is, what do you have? Do you have 30 seconds that you could pull your phone out and text somebody and encourage them? Do you have five minutes that you could take to pray? Do you have an evening available that you could invite somebody to dinner? Do you have a day that you could help out with VBS or a camp? He's not asking most of us to give up $100,000 or some piece of property to a cause that's above our tithe. He's just asking, what do you have? You may not have that, but what do you have? Do you have the ability to skip a coffee one morning or a Coke or a trip through the Wendy's drive-thru and deposit that money into the dollar jar so that we can help people in town? Do you have a few extra dollars to pay for somebody else's meal? Do you have a few extra dollars that you could buy groceries for somebody that doesn't have the few extra dollars like you do? He's not asking. If you have a seminary degree or a counseling degree, what, what do you have? Do you have a few minutes to listen to somebody? Do you have a half a day to play with some kids? Do you have an hour to read the Bible to somebody who can't see the text anymore? He's not after what you don't have. The disciples are like, we can't buy the Domino's franchise to feed thousands of people. Okay, what do you have? Go and see. He's just asking you to take an inventory of what you have. Maybe you're looking around your garage and you see a ladder. Great, let's start there. What can you do with a ladder that will help people? What do you have? God will take it from there. We have this kind of fatal kind of thinking that says this, and we all do it, I do it. I can only do this much, so it's really not worth doing at all. That's fatal. When you put what you have in the hands of Jesus, there's no telling what he's going to do with your little tiny offering. In the hands of Jesus, a little is always much. And so the disciples, in light of what was needed, have nothing, but they bring that nothing and they put it in the hands of Jesus. Verse 39 says this, he commanded everybody to sit down in groups on the green grass and so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. 
There's some really cool details here in this story. One of them is that the people sit down in groups of 50s and 100s. That's kind of a weird detail, but the picture behind the word gives us the idea of garden plots. And so as Jesus was looking out of the crowd of people who were organizing themselves, uh, what he saw was very orderly plots of people, kind of like raised planting beds in a really cool-looking garden with neat paths in between. And as they are sitting down in this orderly fashion, Jesus takes the loaves and the fish, and he looks up and he says, a blessing. Let me ask you, what's the normal way that you pray? You bow your head, right? It's a, it's a stance of humility. That's usually the way they would have prayed. It's the way we pray. But Mark tells us that Jesus looks up into heaven. And so maybe there's more than thanking going on here. Maybe Jesus is looking up into heaven, asking his father for the power necessary to meet the people's needs. And, and as he blesses the food, he probably would have taken on the role of a Jewish father. And he would have said a very familiar, very common prayer at Jewish meals that would have been said, one of these two things, blessed be Jehovah who brings forth bread from the earth. That was a very common prayer. He probably prayed that. Or maybe if he wanted to be a little more fancy, he said something like this, blessed are you, Lord God, king of the world who brings forth bread from the earth. And that was followed by a 5,000 voice, amen. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to who? Who does he give the loaves to? He gives them to the disciples. It's the disciples that get to distribute the fish and the bread. And as they do, it just keeps being there. And they hand it out to all the people. And so, get this. Jesus commands his disciples, you feed them. And then he provides them the resources to be able to do that, to get it done. When Jesus asks us to do something, he will give us the resources we need to get it done. And it's the disciples who get to distribute the food. Uh, I heard one man say it this way, that God is in production, we are in distribution. And that's how it should stay. We should stay in our lane. We are not supposed to go out and try to save people. We're not in production, right? We are in distribution. We go out and we just share, we distribute the salvation that has already been produced by the work of Jesus. You don't have to produce anything when you follow Jesus. You just have to go and pass it out, share it. We're not in production, we are in distribution, so stay in your lane. And all the loaves and fish are divided among all the people, and this is, this is creative power. There's something going on here in the molecules of bread and fish that whenever the disciples read, reach for more, more is there. And everybody is fed. There are lots of attempts to explain this miracle away over the years. People will look at this text and they'll say, well, the riot orders of the Gospels, they exaggerated the numbers. There weren't anywhere close to 5,000 people there that day. Some will look at this text and they will say, well, when Jesus shared the tiny amount of food that he had, it actually encouraged everybody to share the food that they actually had, and then everybody brought out their, you know, Tupperware, and everybody was filled by the end of the day. The problem with that is that the disciples knew that the people didn't have any food. That's why they came to Jesus in the first place. Some say 
that all of this was symbolic, that it was just a spiritual meal, that Jesus didn't really pass the loaves and fishes to everybody. It was just a a minuscule amount that they got, and it was symbolic. Some people have speculated that Jesus and his disciples had a secret stash of food around the corner. There's yetis full of bread and fish waiting. Sure, there are problems for each one of those. But I want you to know this, that as you read each of the gospel writers as they write about this event, they write as if it's a miracle. They write details, and they give us precise details that are really too precise for somebody to have invented the story later on. If you are a communion server today, uh, I want to take this time and just ask you to go and and get prepared for that. And uh, I want to conclude with one more thought as we wind into our communion time today. It goes like this in verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. They all ate and were satisfied. One of the things about this miracle to kind of note and keep in in your brain is that nobody's starving. No one's in danger here. They had all kind of hiked to where Jesus was, and they could have just as easily hiked back to where they came from, probably Their homes are not too far off. Nobody's dying here. Is there really a need for this miracle? But Jesus looks out over this crowd, and he has compassion, and he sees a sheep without a shepherd, and he just wants to bless them. He cares. He loves. He provides until they're all satisfied. That's a very Messiah-like thing to do. One of the things that the rabbis taught about the coming Messiah was that he would bring people bread in the wilderness just like Moses brought people manna in the desert. And here's Jesus doing that. Every gospel writer writes about it, but he's not doing it just to fulfill a prophecy. He's providing in this way. Because he's looking out on a crowd and he's having compassion on them and he cares for these people. He loves them and they are satisfied that day with way more than bread because they realize that he is the king. He is the Messiah. They had reason for wanting to make him king. Now let me show you why it's not just them on that day that can be satisfied with this bread that Jesus gives. But it's us today. We can be satisfied with the bread of life who is Jesus. I want you to go back to verse 41. It says this, and taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. The important words there are highlighted. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it. He gave it. Later on in Mark's gospel, we'll encounter these exact same actions. Here's Jesus with his disciples at the last meal he will ever share with them, the Passover meal, and he takes this Passover meal and he changes its meaning so that it now represents 
what his cross will do for every one of us. I want you to look at the words, Mark chapter 14, verse 22. As they were eating, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Did you notice the words are the same? Right? On the beach that day when Jesus was looking towards some R&R, he taught and then he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the people in the wilderness that day and they all ate and they were all satisfied. And here for his disciples, before he goes to the cross, on the last night that they are together, Jesus takes bread and he blesses it he broke, he gave it, he did this to show his disciples the kind of death that he would die, the blood that he would spill so that everyone who eats of the bread of Jesus Christ can be filled and satisfied forever. Whatever you're looking for in life, it will only be found when you recognize Jesus as the true bread of your life that he is the true one broken for you, that you can live forever. And that's what we celebrate when we come to the table. We can be satisfied in this bread of life. And so that's what you're invited to as a believer, to come to the table and eat today and be satisfied. To get into our time of communion, I want to use the prayer that Jesus would have used that day. And when we get to the end, would you just say amen with me? Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth the bread of life, Jesus, from the earth. And with the strength of 5,000 voices, we say together, amen.